All right, as Nathan said, Genesis 3, 4, somewhere around there is where we're going to be. And um, we're starting a new series here this morning, heading into Christmas. And um, not surprisingly, we're going to talk about babies, but the arrival of a newborn is definitely cause for celebration. Aww, said all the women. And that's my, uh, our latest grandchild, Juliet, or Jules, and uh, thank you uh, for that. Um, but you know, when you have these little bundles of joy that arrive, they brighten days, they bring smiles, they warm hearts, there's no doubt about that. A child uh, can, be, can bring encouragement and happiness and fulfillment and hope and even promise. And that is no more obvious than in the births of the three babies that we read about, uh, three babies in particular that we read about in the Bible. And the three that we're going to look at in this series are tied together in the covenant that God made with humanity. And the first baby that we're going to look at is uh, Seth, uh, the child of promise given in the wake of humanity's fall into sin and the curse of death coming upon humanity. Uh, The second baby is Meir Shalal Hashbaz, Um, I'm sure they just called him Boz. Um, A reminder, uh, and we'll look at him next week, but a reminder and a hopeful sign in troubled times that God had not forgotten his promise. And the third baby, of course, is Jesus. The fulfillment of all that God had promised in the other two babies. Uh, Three babies, one promise, and hope for a world in need. And I don't think I need to, to uh, do very much in the way of convincing you of that last part, that the world is in fact in need, that people are in need, that you and I are in need of a promise, a reminder about the promise. We're in need of hope in this world. And God has promised, and God has fulfilled and is fulfilling and will ultimately completely fulfill that promise to make things right in the world and to make things right in your life and in mine. And the only variable in God fulfilling his promise is this. Will you believe it or not? Will you believe God's promise? So we're going to start out in Genesis 3. I'm going to read a couple of verses there and a couple of verses in chapter 4, and uh, then we're going to work through uh, this material and uh, many other scripture verses along the way. So this is Genesis uh, three, fourteen, and I'll set this up uh, by saying that this is the curse. You're going to see this. It's the curse on the serpent immediately following the fall into sin and death. So Genesis 3, uh, 14 and 15 The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's a pretty important verse. We'll come back to that. And then turn over to chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. And these verses, to frame them up, come after uh, Cain has killed his brother Abel. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, 
for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. All right, here's the question in front of us, as, as I just stated. Will you believe God's promise to make things right, to make things right in the world, to make things right in your life? Will you, will you believe God's promise? To do that, we first need to recognize what we're talking about when we talk about what's wrong. We need to recognize what's wrong. And I, w- I want to take us back to, to chapter 4, the earlier part of chapter 4, and I want to do a little survey here. We didn't read all of this. Um, But this is going to give us a sense of what's wrong in our lives and in the world. And uh, just cruising through this, again, prior to this, Adam and Eve had rebelled against God, against his word. Sin and death had entered the picture. God pronounced curses, and the couple went on to do, Adam and Eve went on to do the thing that God had given humanity to do, namely... And we'll put this verse up on the screen, but it's right there, just a page back probably in your Bibles. He said to them, before sin ever came into the world, he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Be fruitful and multiply. So have kids, populate the earth, fill the earth, subdue the earth and have dominion over the earth. This is what theologians call the dominion mandate. This is what's been given to humanity to do. Only now that sin has entered in the world, now they have to do this dominion mandate with sin tainting their own lives, sin tainting the entire world, including the creation itself. So they have this complication that's been added to the mandate that God had given to them. And so they're getting on with it. They're going to do the best they can with with what they have now created for themselves. So Genesis 4, 1 and 2, Adam knew his wife. We know what that means, right? Is there anybody who doesn't know what that means? Adam had sex with his wife. Okay, we'll just translate it here. Adam had sex with Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. It's her firstborn, saying, I've gotten a man, a son, with the help of the Lord. And I love that Eve, who knew the Lord, had walked around the garden with the Lord, was acknowledging God and giving him the glory for the fact that she now had a son. So that's awesome. We'll give uh, Eve a check mark there. And again, she bore a second uh, son, his brother Abel, so two, two sons. And then right here, like in the middle of a verse, we have to fast forward, like we just fast forward through time. Like that, you know when you just want to fast forward through the commercials for the show you just recorded, but you press it like four times and it just rapidly goes and you have to rewind again? <laughs> fast forward, like so fast all the way to, now they're adults, like she just had them. Now Abel was a keeper, he's all grown up and he's keeping sheep. And Cain is all grown up and he's a worker of the ground, he's a farmer. So all good so far, they're fulfilling the dominion mandate, they're, they're being fruitful, they're multiplying, they have two sons. But then in verses three and five, three to five, we, we read that each of the sons brought offerings to the Lord. So Adam and Eve had taught them some things, and God accepted, and here's the problem, God accepted Abel's offering and rejected Cain's offering. And that made him mad. That made him mad at God. And the rejection, I don't know if you've, what you've heard before about why the offering was rejected. There's a lot of theories out there. I remember being in a Sunday school class and, and watching, and the little picture that we were given was that Cain brought like rotten fruit, like the stuff that's on the half price shelf at Zares, you know, like that fruit. 
that, that that's what Cain brought and Abel brought a really nice white lamb. You know, I remember seeing that and that wasn't it. And, and then I've heard preachers say that, well, you know what? Abel brought a blood sacrifice and that's what you should have done and Cain didn't bring a blood sacrifice. He should, have, he should have sold some of his fruit and he should have bought a lamb off of Abel and brought that and that's not it either because, listen, both kinds of sacrifices throughout the Old Testament are acceptable before God. It, it wasn't about either of those things at all. The issue here is one of attitude. It's, it's of the heart and it's a question of faith between Cain and Abel. In fact, the preacher to the Hebrews said, said it this way in that great chapter 11, Hebrews eleven four. he said, by faith, notice those first two words, by faith. This is, this, is the, this is what delineates these two offerings. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, speaking of Abel, God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, wasn't the gift that saved him, the gift is an expression of the faith that he already had. Through his faith, though he died, he was murdered by his brother, he still speaks and and Abel's still speaking to us as a result of his faith. So Abel brought his first He brought a firstborn from his flock. He brought the best from his flock. And Cain didn't put much thought into it. All All Cain was doing was ticking the religious box, like so many do, like some even in this room likely are doing right now. Some on the live stream, you're probably just ticking the religious box right now. I did my duty for God this week. One brought his offering in faith, and the other out of ritual or obligation. And Cain was showing his true colors toward God as a result. Verse 5 says he was very angry and his face fell. And God fronts him about that. Verses 6 and 7, God says, asks some questions. Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, God's going to lay out for him. Here's, Here's all you needed to do, okay? If you do well, God says, And he's really laying it out for all of us. If you do well, if you bring an offering by faith, not just bring an offering, but bring an offering by faith, that has to be the starting point. We have to first believe before we bring any sense of right or ritual to the Lord. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And the answer to the question, of course, is yes, you would be. And if you do not do well, God says, let me give you the flip side. If you do not do well, if you don't bring your offering by faith, if you don't start with belief, you should have this next part underlined in your Bible because, well, you'll see. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. I mean, that's where you and I live all the time. That's, that's a, that right there is a word for every one of us. It's desire, sin's desire is contrary to you. It's against you. You were created in the image of God. 
You're, you're, you're one generation. You're the second generation of humanity. Your parents were created by God in the image of God. You have, they had, listen, Cain had the best picture of what the image of God looks like in a human being. Not, not corrupted by sin by generation and generation and generation like we see. We see the image of God somewhat dimly in each other. Someday perfectly. But Cain had this picture of it. it. It's desire, sin is crouching. It's desire is contrary to the image of God that he had put in your life. He brought an unacceptable offering. Here's three things very quickly. He brought an unacceptable offering. He's mad at God and not himself as he should be for doing that. And thirdly, he acts out against someone who isn't even part of it. And I think about that and I go like, that's the pattern in my life. I, I sin against God and then I'm kind of angry at him about it because he's the one pointing it out. I feel the spirit inside of me telling me that that's sin, but I'm kind of mad at him about it. And then I can't really lash out against him, so I lash out at the people around me. This is our pattern. So, he's mad about the fact that his offering wasn't accepted, that he hadn't come by faith, verse 8. So when they're in the field, Cain and Abel are out in the field, presumably doing work. Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. First murder. John writes, this is in 1 John 3, John writes, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him, John asks? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brother's righteous, and he just couldn't cope with it. So God asked, asked him two other questions. Verse 9, where's, where's Abel, your brother? Where's your brother? Remember, he comes back with this famous, like, am I my brother's keeper? Verse 10, what have you done? Now, God's not asking the question in order to get the answer because God didn't know the answer. God, of course, knew the answer. He's asking for self-reflection. He's, he's wanting him to come to an understanding of what he's done. And I, I, again, I just see this as a pattern in my own life, and I, I think this could be so helpful to just have this, con personally, to have this conversation with God myself, to imagine God asking me the same questions. What have you done, Todd? What have you done? Genesis uh, 4, again, 4, 11 through 15, he won't look at these verses, but he pronounced a curse on him. And the summary is in verse 16, notice this, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, and, and he did that in both the physical sense, but also in the, obviously in the spiritual sense of that as well. And in verses 17 through 24, we see this pattern of godliness, uh, ungodliness, or I would just say this even better, of godlessness, godlessness, the absence of God in your life. This, this now getting passed down in this line from generation to generation 
to generation. And we're going to come back to those verses in a few moments. But to recap what we've seen here in this first point, jealousy, rivalry, indifference toward God, coldness, hatred, anger, murder. And what Cain displays is typical of every single second of human history from that time forward. And it's also true of your life and mine. It's remarkable when I think back, I, I've been um, walking with the Lord for about 44 years now, and, and I've worked with and known, personally known adulterers and fornicators. I have worked with and known thieves and murderers. And I mean that literally. I have seen unholy anger, and I have seen seething hatred for others and for God. And that sounds extreme in some ways, but the reality is, if I could just borrow some phrases from Paul in his letters, and, and, and any time Paul would like lay out a list of sins and be just kind of ripping on people for being rebellious against God, he would always add in a line like this, in which you once walked, or, or and such were some of you, and, and you know that when you were this also. For we ourselves were, and those are coming from Ephesians and the letter to the Corinthians and to Titus. And so when we look at all of this, we see all of this characteristic of a, of a sinner, an unrepentant sinner in Cain, we realize that this also is us. And so we approach this humbly. And we need to frame the whole thing up in terms of the human condition overall. That's what we see next. See this in terms of the human condition. Because there's something bigger at play here than simply your personal temptations and urges. And, and this, it, we have to see it this way. In, in, the wake, in the wake of Adam and Eve's fall, a curse came down on Satan and on humanity. So God says to the serpent, and I read this verse a few moments ago, and this is a very important verse in the Bible. But he says in verse uh, 315, in Genesis 3.15, the first part, he says, I will put enmity, not a word we use every day, hostility, hatred, ill will, animosity, antagonism. It's all from dictionary.com. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring, so Satan himself, because that's who he's talking to here, and her offspring. And, and, and both of, in both these cases, by the way, we're talking about singulars in terms of the offspring, one offspring. And, and we can think globally, like again, a lot of people look at these verses and go, this is why women are afraid of snakes. Okay, there's, been, there's a lot of that out there. This is why women are afraid of snakes. I just want to let you know, I also am afraid of snakes. <laughs> a lot of people are afraid of snakes. And uh, I know why Edu came back from South Africa. He sent us a video of a, king, of a, a cape cobra slithering across the road where they were walking. Well, there's a good reason not to live there. <laughs> Come to Canada, winter kills everything. It's awesome. So 
Some people see it as the woman and the snake, but there's far more going on here, as you can imagine. The enmity between you and the woman, between your singular offspring, that's Satan himself, and her offspring, referring to the one who would be savior and who would ultimately defeat that serpent. So built into the fabric of a sin-marred creation is enmity, is, is sin, is disorder, is rage, is rebellion, is chaos. That's the world we live in. That, that is the default setting for humanity. It is, it is the human condition. And if we're going to have a proper understanding of anthropology, talking about a Christian anthropology, an understanding of, of what human beings are, it starts with our creation by God in his image and then continues to seeing that image being marred by our decision to sin. So every little baby born is a sinner from birth. That beautiful little granddaughter of mine, Juliet, what a beautiful name, is a sinner. And six weeks in is manifesting the sin nature. I know. She's living at my house right now. Adam's sin, Adam and Eve's sin, Adam's sin is imputed or assigned to every human being born after him. Paul said it this way in his letter to the Romans. This is Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, talking about both physical death and second death, or eternal death or separation from God, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, the, the implications of understanding this and believing that this is our this is our Christian anthropology. This is what we believe about humanity. The implications of this help us navigate the world as Christians. We now navigate the world with greater understanding. Christians should understand what's going on in the world better than anyone else. Because we can frame it up around everything that we're reading right here. When we see genocide and we see wartime atrocities, we know why that's happening. We can be outraged, we can say what needs to be said, but we certainly should not be surprised. When we can't stop racism, when the, when the culture around us can't stop racism, we get it, we know why. Because sin in the world is creating this chaos, this disorder. Because everyone's out for themselves. Because power is so important to us. Our culture's obsession with sex and the perversion of it, that makes perfect sense to us. I'm not shocked by it. It fits with the narrative. The rampant greed in society, the exploitation of the poor that goes with it, fits who we are as human beings. We want to be comfortable. 
And if that means that someone else is uncomfortable, I'm okay with that. Again, I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying that's the Christian perspective. I'm just saying that in our unrepentant state, that is the world around us, and we need to understand that. Power and deceit come naturally to us. And because this is who we are and what we are, we're excluded from the presence of God, just as Cain was. That, too, is the human condition. We are lost. In our, in our natural state, we are lost, we are unsaved, we are unredeemed, we are under the curse, we are condemned, we are dead in our sins, we will die once a physical death, and we will die a second death, eternal separation from God. We have to understand this human condition. And the main opposition to this comes from, I'll just call them the moralists. But this is a heresy. The moralists who would say things like, humans are essentially good. And that it is environment or education that steers us down a path of what the moralists might call, you know, poor choices. We either have poor choices or we have good choices in life. We set a standard for character, and we're going to pursue that moral character in, in life. And this, what it comes down to is this is a nature versus nurture discussion, something I don't have a lot of time to go into right here. But as Christians, we freely acknowledge the role of nurture in developing character and morality. We call that discipleship, becoming like Jesus Christ. But we would see the starting point quite differently. It's your very nature to be a sinner, not to be moral. And that leaves you in a desperate place with respect to God. And so see this next. You and I need to understand the divine remedy. We don't have our own remedy. We have to understand the divine remedy. God made a promise. That's the point of this series is to see that promise and to see it traced through these three babies. God made a way for us to overcome that sin nature and to put on the nature of Christ. This one statement that God makes while placing a curse on Satan, we're talking about 3.15 here, Genesis 3.15, this one statement that God makes while placing the curse on Satan is called the Protevangelium. The Protevangelium, which means the first announcement of the gospel. The first announcement of, God, of the gospel in the Bible is Genesis 3.15. We've already heard and, and, and understood about this enmity between the seed of the woman or the offspring of the woman and the offspring or seed of the serpent. And God goes on to say here in verse Halfway through verse 15, and he shall bruise your head. The seed of the woman will bruise the head of the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the serpent shall bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Again, he's speaking to the serpent. And he says to the serpent, you're going to do some damage. You're going to cause some injury. You're going to hurt the offspring of the woman. 
But that offspring of the woman, he's going to bruise your head. It's going to be a fatal blow to you, a headshot that will bring you to your end. And if this sounds like God is making a threat, you'd be right. He is. It's, it's a threat to Satan. It's a warning. It's a prophetic utterance that accurately predicts the serpent or Satan's demise. And it's a demise that God allows us to be a part of if we're one of his sons or daughters. Right at the end of the letter to the Romans, Paul has this doxology. He's a few doxologies, but in this little doxology, Paul says this. Romans 16, 20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And God is so kind to his sons and daughters that he says to us, you know what? I'm having so much fun crushing Satan's head. You want to join me? Come on over. Let's crush Satan's head. And who among us won't be filled with joy at the ability to do that? To finally put away all of the sin and all of the temptation and all of the rebellions against God. What fun that's going to be. This is what Jesus did by his death on the cross and by his glorious resurrection from the tomb. Romans 6, 5 includes us in, in his death, burial, and resurrection. If, if, if we have been united with him in a death like his, and we have, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So, so we participate in the victory, and we participate in the fight leading up to the victory. And that's the remedy. The death and burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His sacrifice on the cross, his blood shed for us. And we must believe, if we're to understand the divine remedy, then we must believe that Jesus beat that ser serpent. And having believed that, we then embrace the redemptive plan. If I were going to put one word on this last point, it's just the word believe. Just believe. We're going to embrace the divine, the re redemptive plan here. And here's where we finally come to that, because we haven't talked about Seth at all, have we? We're talking about three babies. I've talked about a lot of other things. We're in the fourth point of the first message, the last point. Now we're going to talk about that baby, Seth. I mean, Abel's dead. Cain is, is banished. Eve has lost both of her sons. Verse 25, Adam got busy with his wife again. And she bore a son and called him Seth. Which means appointed one or given one or, or put in the place of one. And she said, God has appointed for me another offspring, another seed instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And I, I want you to imagine Eve is saying this. She's birthed both of these boys. And it turns out to just be a disaster for her. 
And you can hear in her words the broken heart of a mom. And some of you in this room who have been moms and have had your hearts broken know exactly the pain that's behind Eve's words here. But God in his mercy to Eve and also to us replaced him. And I say to us because this son is the son of promise. Pretty much everything we, we know about Seth, and this was the, the interesting thing about picking Seth, is because everything we know about Seth is right here. In the scriptures, here's what we know about Seth. He was born. <laughs> oh, also that he also had a son. That's all that we know about Seth. Everything we have is right here. We have the promise, the offspring, the seed of Eve in chapter 3, verse 15. And there's a mention of him later, but... But we don't have any other details. Everything we, we know about him is, is right here. Verse 26, to Seth also was, a son was born. And, and this son's name, notice, is Enosh. But also this comment added about this, this new line of, of people, these new generations at that time, verse 26, at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And obviously that's a good thing. Seth started a line of God worshipers. And, and when you read the whole of the narrative here, you see what Cain and his descendants had accomplished and, and a contrast is set up between these two brothers. We didn't read the verses, but in, in verses 17 through 22 of chapter 4, what we see is impressive. They had built culture and they had built cities. Kent Hughes wrote this in his commentary. When Cainite civilization, so this is the civilization, civilization of those who are descendant of Cain. The Cain when, the, when Cainite civilization began to rise, and worship at, and rise and worship at the shrines of abundance and art and technology. It kind of sounds like today. When abuse and violence and the devaluation of life became commonplace, that also sounds like today. When vengeance became exponential, when men fancied that they were captains of their souls. You'd have to read all of Hughes's commentary on this section to know he opens this section by quoting Invictus, that that humanistic poem where, where the, the, the voice, the narrator says he's the captain of his own soul, right? So Hughes quotes that, but that's a humanistic um, mantra or, or anthem. When men fancy that they were captains of their souls, in contrast to that, a very new and different society has now been birthed a precursor to Israel in the church, okay, the people of God. Sethite civilization, in contrast to Canaanite, began to proclaim the name of the Lord, the captain of their salvation. And in his comments, he quotes um, Matthews who said this, Cain's firstborn and successors pioneer cities and civilized arts but Seth's firstborn and successors pioneer worship. And you can see why that's critical for a broken world that needs hope. Seth provides the alternative to Cain's 
empty and faithless pursuit, his godlessness, his pursuit of this world. And again, Hughes writes this, our text provides us a paradigm, an outline to understand civilization and culture today and its ostensible rise with the increase in abundance, music, arts, and technology. It rises impressively, but in its rise, there is demise because of sin. The only hope is to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the only hope for culture. This is the only hope for your soul. This is the only hope for the church to call upon the name of the Lord who is Jesus Christ. It starts with Seth and his descendants who began to call upon the name of the Lord, who believed the promise, a promise that would be fulfilled through his own offspring which is exactly what we see in the genealogy. If you go to the nativity story in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 3, right at the end of Luke's telling of the nativity story, we have a genealogy. Now, how many people would say when you're reading through the Bible, I'm reading through the Bible this year, four chapters a day, I'm on track. Now, how many people would say when you're reading through the Bible, you skip the genealogies? Okay, thank you, Brad. I appreciate your courage in admitting that, brother. The genealogies are filled with such rich information, and here's just a little tidbit of it. In Luke 3.38, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as, it, as was supposed, of Joseph. And then Luke lists all these generations. He goes back through all these generations of fathers and sons, and he ends with this, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And that genealogical record traces the lineage of Jesus Christ, the son of Mary and Joseph, directly back to Seth, the son of promise. And so while the scriptures don't say very much about Seth in terms of volumes of verses or details about his life, isn't this the most important detail of all? That he is the ancestor, the son of promise of the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself. The seed, the offspring of Eve. Seth, the first seed, and Jesus, the final seed or offspring. The one who would bruise, fatally bruise the serpent's head and make a way for you and I to be saved. That's a well thought out plan. It's God's plan. And he's calling upon each person right now to simply believe that plan, to embrace it, to believe the promise of God to make things right, not just in the world eventually, but in your life right now. And you can be like Cain, reject God, no faith, just live a godless life. Or you can be like Seth, believe the promise and call upon the name of the Lord. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that in this message that um, 
is overtly an appeal to those who have not yet believed the promise to believe, I pray that you would also use it to strengthen our faith, to encourage us, to give us a fresh perspective on this world and, and on ourselves as human beings, a fresh resolve to, to battle sin, knowing that it's crouching at the door and it would have us. And yet, Father, we know that we can overcome by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, in all the ways that you could possibly speak to us through the study of your scripture here today, I pray that you would do that. Father, that you would pierce right into each one of our hearts very individually, giving us exactly what we need to hear and with a, a willingness to respond. But again, Father, I pray mostly for those who have not yet bowed their heads and bent their knees before you, who are still living a godless life or who are still living a life where they're ticking a religious box. And I pray, God, that this morning, in this moment, they would believe and find life and hope and promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.